this church at this time, so our three-year-olds through third graders, if you want to dismiss them, you can send them up to the front here, and um, they will be taken downstairs and have a wonderful time in kids' church. The rest of you, if you're not going to kids' church, I want to invite you to take your Bible and find your place in Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to continue our study working verse by verse through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, it's good to be back with everyone this morning. Uh, last week I was out because of sickness and had bronchitis, and I barely could even speak last Sunday. I can speak a little bit better this morning, so I'm going to try to, to, to muscle through today. I feel fine outside of just some uh, lingering congestion and, and the effects on my, on my voice. Uh, and then the Sunday before that, we were gone out of town in Georgia, South Carolina, Georgia, for my wife's grandma's 100th birthday, and she was born the same year, a little bit older than uh, Billy Graham, and so uh, had a great celebration down there a couple weeks ago. It's good to be back with you this morning. It's good to have some folks that have been on the, uh, on the road lately. You know, our India team came back sun- Saturday night before last and had a wonderful time. Finally got it to India and then had a great mission, great, uh, great work there in, uh, in New Delhi, and now Steve is back home with us. He's been in South Korea. Uh, working, doing evangelism with uh, uh, the Olympics. And so it's a wonderful thing. I've joked with some of our staff and some of his staff while I was at the convention office a week or so ago that only pictures I saw, for the most part, coming out of South Korea were food and, uh, and watching Olympic events. And I was like, that's the kind of mission trip I want to go on. But I know it was so much more than that. And they had opportunities to share the gospel and pass out Bibles and gospel literature. And what a great opportunity that is for the nations to come and gather in a certain uh, city, certain country, and then to have the gospel given to them and then take it back to where they come from. That's a Pentecostal type movement right there. And so that's what our prayer was, is that God would use that to take the gospel to the nations as the nations gather together. But it's good this morning to be with you. And we're going to pick up where we left off in Nehemiah chapter 2. And this morning I want to speak to the subject of a good leader. I want to talk about leadership. You may say, well, I'm not a leader of any capacity, so this message probably doesn't apply to me. Well, I would disagree. I believe all of us have some sort of leadership responsibilities in our lives. And so if you're a mom, you are a leader in your home. If you're a dad, you're a leader in your home. If you're an employer or a supervisor, you are a leader where you work. If you're a teacher, you're a leader there in the school. All of us have leadership roles and responsibilities. Therefore, it's important that we understand how to be a good leader. How God can use us in our life using our leadership skills and abilities to better influence and lead people to where they need to, to go. And so this morning, for our small group leaders and people in leadership within our church, this is a message that God wants to speak to you through. God wants to speak to your heart and train you and develop you in the area of leadership. Even so much so as, as sharing the gospel with others, trying to be a faithful gospel witness in your day-to-day relationships. This is a message for you where you can learn how to be a better leader and lead people to Jesus, lead people to love God more and more. And so the, the concept, the idea, the subject of leadership, I think is one that we're pretty much all aware of and conscious of, and, and we, can, we understand how crucial it is. And yet, Sometimes, even though we realize leadership is needed, sometimes leadership can be this daunting task or this daunting position for us, something that we may shy away from or or try to run from in our lives because we realize that leadership is oftentimes difficult. 
Leadership is oftentimes stressful. I mean, the, being the pastor of this church, you say, well, it's not, a, it's not a mega church. Well, anytime you're in leadership, especially leading people who, uh, who uh, pay your salary, let's just say, put it that way, and, and you're, you're not leading a company where I have some sort of authority over you where I can kind of force you to do what I want to do, it can be stressful just in the area of leadership. And so uh, I, I love this passage that we're going to look at. It's the one we've looked at the last two Sundays that I've been with you. But now we're going to look at it and look at Nehemiah and look at him as a good leader. But leadership can be daunting. It can be um, perplexing at times. Let me give you a couple examples of what I'm talking about. Take Mike as an example. Mike sat stunned in silence, alone in his boardroom one morning. He had appointments to keep, but at the moment they just seemed ill irrelevant. And so he remained frozen there in his chair, trying to process all of the events of the previous hour of his life. Mike was the CEO of a software company. He was a young man in his early 30s. He was bright, he's creative, and very good at his job. Moreover, Mike was a committed Christian. He had a strong work ethic. He had always considered his faith to be an asset to his career. And many of you are in the business world, and as a Christian, you see your faith as an asset to your career. That morning's executive team meeting had shattered that assumption. See, what began as a routine weekly meeting began to escalate into an acrimonious dispute, revealing what he learned to be a pervasive undercurrent of resentment toward him, and specifically a resentment toward his Christian beliefs. It seems a clear line had been drawn in the sand with his executive team demanding that Mike choose between his Christian faith or his business. His staff seemed united on one thing, and that was his agenda for the company did not match their agenda. And so Mike was bewildered. He had a talented staff who knew their fields, and yet the majority of his staff were non-believers, and several were even disdainful of the Christian faith. And so Mike began to wonder, as he sat there in his boardroom, if his job and his faith could ever coexist, if there would be any opportunity for the two of them to coexist any longer. Then there's Pastor Edwards. Pastor Edwards could hardly hold back his tears one morning. He could hear the deacon's voices as they walked down the hallway away from his office. The group that morning had arrived unexpectedly and lambasted him for all of the issues in their church, blaming him for the problems. And problems there were. There were lots of problems in the church. Two years ago, Edwards had enthusiastically accepted this call to serve as the pastor of the church. He was fully aware of the problems or the difficulties that the church was facing. After all, every church has issues. It's funny, I've been through several, I say several, three or four uh, pastor search processes to become the pastor of a church. And it's funny, when you meet with the search team for several weeks, they try, and they don't try to deceive you, but they try to paint the best picture of the church. But all the while, the pastor who's being looked at by the search committee, he knows that it's only about half as good as they really say it is, because churches have problems. Now, with this church, it was about 90% of what they said. That's because they told the truth. <clears throat> This church had issues. And so as he became the pastor, he really believed. As a young man, faith, uh, a faith that is strong, a, a strong belief in the Lord, he sincerely believed that through prayer, biblical teaching, and just wise guidance, loving guidance of the people, it would bring this ailing church back to health. But now things were actually beginning to get worse. Landmines seemed to explode everywhere he stepped in ministry. 
Several families had requested more modern music in the services, and so he willingly obliged. In doing so, he inadvertently uh, upset another group of people who, who uh, didn't like this new style of worship. And they began to withhold their tithes and withhold their service in the church until the music was changed back to their preferred style of music. One of the deacons was rumored to be in an adulterous relationship, and so an attempt to confront him set the entire deacon body up in arms. They accused Edwards of witch hunting. They argued that this deacon was a great influence in the community. They pointed out that the church couldn't afford another public scandal. When Edwards proposed the hiring of a part-time student pastor, another battle erupted among several interest groups within the church, clamoring for their needs. Even his preaching had come under fire. It was too long, wasn't enough humor. Sounded kind of like me. Edwards had been growing very weary under this stress. You can imagine the stress mounting upon his shoulders. But he remained strong in his beliefs that things would eventually get better. But that was before this morning's visit. He could hear the words still in his mind that they had said as they came and said, as representatives of this church, we feel obliged to tell you that we can no longer follow your leadership. Perhaps you should begin circulating your resume to other churches who might appreciate your style of leadership. So that morning, Pastor Edwards buried his face in his hands, feeling like a failure, wondering if there was something else that he could have done for the church. Leadership is daunting. Leadership is stressful. Leadership can be scary. James McGregor Burns asserts that leadership is one of the most observed and yet least understood phenomena on earth. You can go to the bookstore this morning, you can look there in the section on leadership, and you'll find volume after volume after volume on leadership. There's all kinds of works that have been published on this subject, and yet there still seems to be a major misunderstanding of what leadership really is. J. Oswald Sanders, in his classic book, Spiritual Leadership, defines leadership as this. He says, leadership is influence. It's the ability of one person to influence others. That's what leadership is. The question is, can we lead people? Can we influence others? Robert Clinton, viewing leadership through the lens of Christianity, points out that the central task of leadership is influencing God's people towards God's purposes. And that's what our responsibility is as a Christian. We're not just to influence people for the sake of influencing them. We're to influence them toward the purposes of God. So leadership, we all know, is fundamental to the, healthy and vi- the health and vitality of any organization. If we want to be a church that touches the nations, if we want to be a church that touches our neighbors here, we need to be a church that has strong leaders leading people, influencing people to the purposes of God. John Maxwell has rightly said that everything rises and falls on leadership. And so as a Christian, we need to be good leaders. We need to be good leaders in our home. We need to be good leaders in our schools. We need to be good leaders in our businesses. We need good leaders in politics. We need good leaders in the White House. We need good leaders everywhere. We need good leaders right here. The church needs strong leaders. So what makes a good leader. We find the answer, or at least an answer, to this question as we look at the leadership of Nehemiah. So if you will, take your Bible there and look with me in Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning reading again in verse 9. Nehemiah says, And then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, 
and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. (coughs) I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. And then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you were doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would take your word and through your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would press upon our hearts what it means and what it takes to be a good leader. Not just a good leader for the sake of, uh, of, a, uh, of occupying a position, but Lord, what does it take to lead and influence people and point them toward the purposes of God for their life? Lord, I pray that you would take every leader that sits here in, in, in our midst and that you would strengthen them and develop them, help them to be all of the things that we're going to see in this passage All for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. You remember what's going on in this passage here, what's going on at this time in the life of of Israel. At this time here, the once great and glorious Jerusalem lie in ruins. Its gates have been burned, its walls have been torn down. The city was destroyed. Many of the people who had returned with Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel and Ezra had now left to live in the countryside. They were no longer living in Jerusalem because of the conditions. The people were discouraged. The poor were suffering from high taxes. The Persians, because they ruled everything, were taking the revenue. And then the neighboring groups dominated in commerce as well as in politics. Nehemiah, if you remember, was the cupbearer to the king. And in chapter 1, we learned that as he's there in Susa, the citadel with the king for the winter, some men come to bring a report of what is going on in Jerusalem. And when Nehemiah hears this report, he's cut to the heart. He immediately begins to seek the face of God. Immediately begins to pray. The Bible tells us he prayed for four months while waiting for an opportunity to approach the king. And during those months, as he was praying, as he was fasting, as he was seeking the heart and the face of God for his people, he also began to prepare. He began to get everything in order, everything that would be needed for when that opportunity came, to have an opportunity to speak to the king and ask for provisions. He had everything in place to know what to do. You see, Nehemiah believed God would act. He understood God's promise in Deuteronomy that with the people rebelled, he would banish them. He would send them out in punishment. But there would be a time when he would bring them back to the land. 
So he believed God would act in accordance with his word. And so he persistently and he patiently prayed and prepared for God to move. His faith led him to make the preparations so that when God did move, he would be ready. And so finally that day came for action. That day came, that opportunity presented itself as he's standing there before the king, giving him his drink. His face, the Bible says, was downcast and an opportunity for him to speak on behalf of Jerusalem arose. And so he asked the Lord what he should say. And then he presented it to the king. And all of a sudden, everything he's been preparing for, everything he's been praying for, is now being thrust into action as he's on his way to Jerusalem as the new appointed governor of Judah. Here in chapter 2, the passage that we've read already, as Nehemiah arrives there in Jerusalem, we see that he immediately went to work. He assesses the situation. He begins to share and cast the vision with the people, and he inspired them to the work. And we're going to see in a few chapters in Nehemiah chapter 6 that all of this vision casting and all of this leadership that he exerted and all this preparation and all this prayer culminated after 52 days of work when the wall and the gates were completed. So from this man, from Nehemiah, we learn five things about a good leader. Five traits that apply to the Christian husband who is seeking to lead his home. Five traits that apply to the Christian businessman or businesswoman who seeks to lead in the company. The Christian teacher who seeks to lead at her school. The administrator that wants to leave her faculty. The Christian small group leader who's seeking today to lead his or her small group in the church. These five traits apply to all of us in every area of our lives. And so let me share them with you this morning. I will not finish this morning, but we're going to get through the first two or three. Trait number one of a good leader. A good leader is first a good follower. A good leader is first a good follower. You know, we're all too familiar with leadership being abused. We're all too familiar with leaders taking more responsibility or more authority than they should, abusing the position that they have. And so we've observed this all throughout uh, every facet of life. I mean, you turn your television on today, and you see it. I was watching the news this morning, and you see all these reports coming back from, from these different uh, committees in our Senate, and we see how our government, parts of our government, have worked and used elements of the gar- government against the other party. We understand an abuse and a misuse of leadership. So sometimes, as followers of Jesus, we may become a little disillusioned. We may want to shrug responsibility. We may want to run from leadership uh, obligations, but thankfully the Lord has spoken to this issue. What does the Word of God say about leadership? Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, speaking on uh, on the position of elder, pastor, and teacher, he says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. He says it's a noble task, I have a desire to lead in the family of God. But in Jeremiah chapter 45, verse 5, the first part of that verse, the Bible says, God speaking here, and do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. So Paul says anyone who aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good thing. But yet Jeremiah is speaking on behalf of God and says, you're seeking great things? Don't seek them. Sounds like these two verses are diametrically opposed to one another, but yet that's not the case at all. God's word never contradicts itself. See, what these verses are doing is they're providing for us both a warning and an encouragement. 
I mean, think about it. There's no doubt that Christians must resist a certain kind of ambition and rid it from their lives. All of us, all of us have this sinful, fleshly nature. All of us are puffed up left to ourselves. All of us are proud and arrogant. All of us want all the glory for ourselves. So yes, we need to push back against any sort of fleshly desire, any sort of fleshly desire that would lead us to be domineering. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't uh, honor and and embrace leadership responsibilities that the Lord gives us. We must acknowledge that there are ambitions in this life that are noble, that are worthy, and that are honorable. Sonny Perdue is the secretary of the Department of Agriculture. Sonny Perdue was the governor of Georgia. And back in 2003, when I had an opportunity to be on Johnny Hunt's staff and travel with him, Sonny Perdue had just become the governor, I believe that year, the year before. And he became a member of First Baptist Woodstock, and so he was holding and hosting a prayer breakfast one morning, and I got to be the guy who got to tag along with Pastor Johnny to the governor's mansion, and I got to sit there and watch the governor interact with clergy from all over the city, the metro of Atlanta. It was amazing. Creflo Dollar walked in. Of course, he rode in on a jet, but uh, that's a joke, by the way. You're supposed to laugh at that. You may not know who Creflo Dollar is, but uh, that would get a little bit more than that, Steve. Thank you. Can you just laugh or something? All right. There's people from all walks of life. There was a really neat thing. <laughs> kind of a delayed laugh. But uh, what was interesting about that whole meeting was just seeing here a man. If you know Sonny Perdue, he used to be a veterinarian. He's a, he was a farmer, ran for governor because he believes in, in, in just fundamental conservative um, ideology. He was a great governor there, and now he's serving in the cabinet of the White House, leading the Department of Agriculture. And I've heard recently that um, someone was talking about some statement that he made when he was, um, right after he'd become the Secretary of Agriculture, and he, he made this statement basically. He says, I feel like that God has called me to this position. So it's not something that he was seeking out. It's not something that he was lobbying for. It's not a position that he was doing everything he could to get himself in that position. It was a position that came to him. And when that opportunity came to him, he sensed the calling of God upon his life to lead the Department of Agriculture. Why? Because it's a noble and honorable position. It's a a position that is worthy of his service. It's not something that he's out of ambition is seeking, but it's his desire to be a faithful and godly witness in that position, to be a godly influencer of others. So when our ambition is to be effective in the service of God, to realize God's highest potential for our lives, we can keep both of these verses in mind and we can hold them in tension. He says it's a noble thing that should be desired and yet at the same time there's the warning to not seek those things too much. Nehemiah personified this. He aspired to help the people in Jerusalem, and yet he never sought out a position of privilege for himself. If we were to flip over to chapter 5, verses 14 and following, we would see that Nehemiah is making this statement. When I became the governor, I didn't do anything to, to gain from you the things that I could have. I didn't take a full advantage of my position as the governor to exploit you, but I came to serve you. I came to minister to you. I came to be a blessing to you. See, when he heard the report of the shameful state of Jerusalem, Nehemiah prayed and fasted before the God of heaven. When the opportunity came to address the king about Jerusalem, Nehemiah again is praying to God in chapter 2, verse 4. He had a clear vision of what to do and what was needed because he sought God, he listened to God, and he followed 
God. He was a good leader because he was first a good follower. This morning, if you desire to be a good leader, you must first follow the leader. And that leader is Jesus. That leader in your life is the Lord Jesus Christ. See, good leadership, biblical leadership, is first and foremost servant leadership. Why is that? That's because that's the type of leadership that Jesus modeled here. Jesus was a servant leader. He came to seek and to serve. Jesus, addressing this subject with James and John's mother, there in Matthew chapter 20, declared this. He said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you remember that passage, what's going on there? James and John, uh, the sons of Zebedee, their mother comes to Jesus. And from the way the context looks of the passage, James and John were standing there as well. John and James' mother looks to Jesus and says, When you come into your kingdom, can my two sons sit on your right and on your left? And Jesus said that, that what you're requesting is not for you to request. It's not, it's not their position. It's not even for me to give. It's the Father that gives this. And then he begins to declare, I don't even come to, to have this mighty position. I come to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So who is this Jesus? Who is this servant leader? Jesus is the one who healed the sick. Jesus is the one who fed the hungry. Jesus is the one who comforted the broken. He's the one who gave his life on the cross for sinners. He served others. Now, who is Jesus? He is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the one that the Bible says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is who this Jesus is. And yet, as he came this first time, he came as a humble servant seeking to serve others, washing the feet of the disciples on the very night that they would betray him to his death. He served others. So as a good Christian leader follows the example set by Jesus, we will model servant leadership. That leader will put others' needs above their own. See, a good Christian leader not only follows the example set by Jesus, but he also follows the words of Jesus. And Nehemiah listened to, and he obeyed the words of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 12 tells us all the things that the Lord had put in his heart. That's what Nehemiah is now exercising. When he gets to Jerusalem, all the things that God's been speaking to him, all the things he's been pouring into his heart, now Nehemiah's going to put it into action. Why? Because he's a good leader who first is a good follower. If you want to be a great small group leader, if you want to be a great husband who leads your home, if you want to be a great business leader, you will first follow Jesus in your life. Your main thrust won't be the bottom line. Your main thrust will be honoring the Lord Jesus Christ in everything that you do. From the words that you say to the actions that you take, and the business deals that you make. So those who desire to be good, godly leaders, will first be a good follower of Jesus. You will seek out, you will listen to, and you will follow the the direction of the Lord. Let me give you a second trait this morning, and we'll close up here. A good leader is not only a good follower first, but he's also, or she's also, a good leader takes time to rest. A good leader takes time to rest. This is the curveball that you probably weren't expecting. I didn't know that if we were going to be a leader, we get to go on vacation once or twice a month. Wouldn't that be great to be able to go on vacation all the time and just kind of relax? That's not what we're going to be talking about at all. But we are going to see a principle here that God intends for us to rest. See, rest is oftentimes hard to come by today. It's hard for us to find times to rest. It's hard for us to find times to, to get away and just refresh and rejuvenate our souls and our bodies. It's perhaps even harder for leaders to find rest 
I mean, think about it. On top of the family obligations and needs, there's always, as a leader, another phone call to make. There's always another email to respond to. There's always another meeting to prepare for, a visit to make, a staff to lead. There's always something to do. And many times leaders, business leaders, church leaders, doesn't matter what time of leadership you're in, even on vacation, many times you're working. I find this all the time in my life. I'm always thinking about the future. I'm always thinking about what's next. I'm always thinking about what we need to be doing or what we should have done. I'm always, it's hard for me to wind down and think about something else. To rest is very difficult for me. So with all the different needs pulling at the leader, it's very difficult to rest. But Nehemiah here models for us the priority of rest that should be present in our life. Look here at verse 12, verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and they went around and looked at the walls. He's in Jerusalem for three days, and then he arises and begins the work. Think about what's going on here. What would you have done if you were Nehemiah? As he entered the Jerusalem for the very first time, he sees the shameful state of the city. He sees the same shameful state of the people of the city. He witnessed the immediate need facing all of the people there. He saw that the work was great. He saw that there was much needed to be done just to get the project up and running. There was many things that had to get finished. He understood that in order to be at his best, though, he first had to rest. Why did Nehemiah have to rest? Well, we've got to understand, this is, not, uh, this is not modern day travel. What's been going on through all this? Well, Nehemiah had spent four months praying and fasting and seeking the heart of God and the face of God, seeking to know what the will of God was for his life and for the people of Israel. He wanted to know these things. He needed to know these things. And so he's seeking God for four months. Then he speaks to the king, and immediately he's off on his way to Jerusalem. But that journey takes four months as well. And so four months of difficult travel, four months of walking and and riding camels through the desert all the way to Jerusalem to get there. So for eight different months, Nehemiah has been praying, preparing, and traveling. And as he gets to Jerusalem, he's, he's toast. He's wasted. He's exhausted, spiritually exhausted in his life, physically exhausted in his life. And so Nehemiah understood that in order to be at his best, he first had to rest. He prayed those four months. He traveled for those four months. And now as a spiritually and physically exhausted man, he needed some R&R. He needed to take some time off. So before the work of rebuilding had begun, Nehemiah had already accomplished much. And he needed to rest. Did you know that many times when you, as a leader, have a major accomplishment, that immediately on the backside of that accomplishment, two things tend to, to, to swoop in on your life, a period of depression or a period of temptation. Did you know that? When you have a major milestone, especially spiritually in your life, there's the threat, there's the temptation for you to fall into a, a period of, of dis deep depression in your life for whatever reason, or there's this deep uh, temptation in your life to fall prey to sin. I mean, we see this all throughout the scriptures. We see men who are on this major high with the Lord, accomplishing great things for the Lord, and all of a sudden on the backside of that, they're in this dark place of life. They're in this uh, sinful place in life. This is exactly what happened to the prophet Elijah. In, In 1 Kings chapter 19, if you remember the story, 
In 1 Kings 18, Elijah there is the prophet, stands against the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Ashura, and he stands against them. You know, the, you remember the story. They're offering these sacrifices. They cut the, the, the bulls, and, and so the 450 prophets march around half a day. They're cutting themselves. They're doing all sorts of stuff, calling on Baal to answer in, a, in basically a fire from heaven, and nothing ever happens. All the while, Elijah's mocking them. Would have been a great, great thing to, I would have bought a ticket to sit there and watch this, this sight. And then after that, Elijah steps up and he sacrifices his bull. He puts it on the altar. He lays the wood there. He calls for water to be dumped on it. It fills the trough around the altar. And then he stands there and he calls on the God of heaven. And the God of heaven answers in a pillar of fire. Burns up the sacrifice, boils up, evaporates all of the water. And he won the event. He's the victor. And yet the next day we see him on the run from the king's wife. Why is this? Because on the backside of a major spiritual accomplishment, oftentimes as humans, there is a struggle emotionally. We fall prey to temptation or we will fall prey to depression. And so what Elijah needed on that particular day, if you remember the story, he runs from then. He runs for like uh, 40 days or something. He, the, the angel of the Lord finds him and prepares a meal for him and gives him water to drink. And Elijah does nothing but sleep. He sleeps through the whole thing, wakes up, gets another meal, and goes on his journey. What did Elijah need in his life? He needed rest. And many times as leaders, the greatest thing you need is rest. You need some relaxation. You need some times to just sit there quiet before the Lord. We need regular times of rest. God has built this into our DNA. He's built this into our makeup. He built this into history. I mean, there in creation, he established the Sabbath day of rest in the framework of creation. We need times to both physically and spiritually have our tanks replenished. And so let me give you a couple thoughts here. A good leader prioritizes sleep. Sleep can be difficult sometimes for us to have, but we need to prioritize sleep in our lives. I don't know about you this morning, how, how you prioritize that, but in my life, I try to prioritize that. I mean, I go to bed typically at a, uh, the same time every day, and I wake up early. I'm an early to bed in the evening, and I'm an early riser, but I'm going to get a certain amount of hours to sleep. Now, I wish those hours could shrink. I wish there was a point where I could sleep two hours a day and I would accomplish so much more in my life, but that's not ever going to happen more than likely because God has not physically wired me to operate on four or two hours of sleep. I have known some people that try to make it on four hours of sleep, and you know what? You can tell. They got bags under their eyes. They're black. I mean, their eyes are black. They always like, look like they're a zombie, and so I just want to go to them and say, just get two more hours of sleep. You'll be all right. But a leader prioritizes sleep. You need to learn to put down the things of life and go to bed. Some of our older generation here, this may not be difficult for you, but in our younger generations, this is difficult for you. You need to learn to put the phone down. You need to learn to set the tablet down. You need to start, learn to walk away from the computer. You need to learn to say no to that request for your time. You need to make time for sleep because you need it to rejuvenate. Those of you who are leaders in our church and on Sunday mornings, you're coming here and you're dragging. I used to be that teenager who'd stay out late on Saturday night, sleep through the invitation. I love the invitation on Sunday mornings because it's the only time I could close my eyes and everybody thought I was praying, but I was really trying to catch about five minutes of half sleep. I remember those days. And some of you may be like that on Sunday mornings as well. What I would say to you as your pastor, go to bed earlier on Sunday, Saturday night so that you can be restful and prepared mentally, physically, and spiritually on Sunday. 
The worst thing you could do is sleep through the message. The worst thing you could do is sleep in and stay at Bedside Baptist on a Sunday because your body is not physically ready to worship and to celebrate with the people of God. The second thing about a good leader finding or prioritizing rest is a good leader prioritizes times of retreat. There needs to be a time in your life when you get away for the purpose of relaxing and hearing from God. Now you say, well, that's what vacation's all about. Well, many times when we come back from vacation, we need a vacation to get, get rested up from vacation. We're about to take our girls to, to uh, Disney over spring break, so in about a month, I'm going to be flat broke. I'll accept all sorts of uh, proceeds, you know, checks, money orders, cash, whatever coming my way. We're going to take our kids to, to Disney World for a week. You know what I'm going to feel like when I get back? Like I need a vacation, Right? Because we're going to be walking daylight to dark through those parks in Disney. We're going to drive to Florida and drive back from Florida. I mean, it's going to be taxing upon us. We're going to need a vacation. So I'm not talking necessarily about vacation. I'm talking about some sort of prioritization of a retreat in your life. Maybe it's an hour. Maybe it's a day. Maybe it's two days. Maybe it's a week. It's time where you retreat from the things of this world, even retreating from your family to some extent, and just focusing upon you and the Lord. Allowing the Lord and His Holy Spirit to refresh you, to speak into you, to fill your spiritual tanks back up. This is something I've been thinking more and more about, even in my own ministry, of, uh, of trying to carve out uh, periods, two, three, four days, uh, a couple times a year where I can retreat and get away and, and not have the phone next to me, not have uh, some sort of social media next to me, not have our staff contacting me, but time where I can get away and just allow the Holy Spirit to speak into my heart and into my life about things of our church, about things of my own spiritual life, my family, all of those things. I need times of retreat. You need times of retreat if we're going to be effective in our leadership. Why? Because work is demanding. And when you're a leader, the work is even that much more demanding. So spiritual leadership is even more demanding than regular leadership. If you want to be good, if you want to be an effective leader, we've got to learn to carve out regular and quiet times for rest in our lives. It ought to start every single morning. First thing you do in the morning ought to be your time with the Lord. It ought to be, if you like coffee, go make your coffee, get your coffee, go sit down. Don't turn the TV on. Don't turn the radio on. Open your Bible and sit quietly before the Lord and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. You know, in our culture, especially my generation and younger, silence is very deafening. You know, the few times that the powers went off in the last couple months, um, I kind of laughed at my kids because <coughs> they didn't know what to do without Internet. You know, Wi-Fi went out. The world just shut down all of a sudden. But you know what I found out? I also felt like the world shut down. I didn't have Fox News to watch. I didn't have a hunting show to watch. I didn't have uh, Wi-Fi to, 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 to use or to stream. I mean, it was, it was quiet. And quietness can be deafening. And yet quietness is exactly what we need. How can we hear from the Lord when the things of this world are so loud that it drowns out the voice of God, the voice of God that is so powerful that it rips the cedars, the Bible says, and causes the deer to fawn. And yet the cares of this world, if we're not careful, will drown out the voice of God so we can't hear him. We need times of rest. We need times of retreat. Why? Because we need to hear from a God who desires to speak into our lives and into our ministry. What is a good leader? A good leader is first a good follower, and a good leader takes time to rest. Next Sunday we'll pick up there and 
we'll finish out these last three traits of a good leader. When thinking about Nehemiah, what was it that made him such a good leader? Is it because he read a bunch of good leadership books? Is it because he had some sort of leadership pedigree, came from a family of great leaders, and was kind of bred into him? What, what, made, Le- what made Nehemiah such a phenomenal leader? Because we're going to get into this as we walk through Nehemiah, as I mentioned earlier. We're going to see that his leadership inspired the people of God to build the wall and the gates of Jerusalem in 52 days. It would be hard for us today with our modern technology to build the walls of, of, of Jerusalem in 52 days. And yet they, with their primitive tools and equipment, built the wall in 52 days. What was it about his life that made him a great leader? It wasn't the books he read. It wasn't the seminars he attended. It wasn't the conferences that he went to. It wasn't any of those things. It was because of his relationship with God. You see, what made Nehemiah who Nehemiah was was not because of his pedigree, outside of the pedigree of God in his life. And that's what makes us. It's about our relationship, our connection with the God who made us for himself, who loves us. I, I love this week listening to all of the, the, the short clips of, of Billy Graham's preaching this week. I mean, one of the things that Billy Graham always said was this, God loves you. God loves you. I mean, this week I've heard that a hundred times if I've heard it once. From Billy Graham's preaching, God loves you. And this morning, God loves you. God wants to have a relationship with you. I, I don't know where you're at personally. I don't know where you're at spiritually. But wherever you're at, I want you to understand this morning, God loves you. And God loves you so much that he has done what was necessary to bring you as a sinful, rebellious person into a relationship with him. And that is through his son, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross, who was buried in a grave and was raised from the dead to conquer sin and hell in your life. That's how much God loves you. And if you will embrace him as Lord and Savior, he will transform your life. He will make you everything he desires to have in your life. If you will turn to him. So this morning, I don't know where you're at spiritually. Some of you have been walking with Jesus for many, many years, 40, 50, 60 years. Some of you have been walking with Jesus for two years. Some of you have never walked with Jesus. You've been religious, but you've never been in relationship with Jesus. So this morning, as we uh, sing a, a, a song of response in just a moment, as Nick and his folks come, I just want to encourage you, wherever you're at spiritually, make Jesus the king of your life. Make Jesus the priority of your life. If you need a relationship with him, I'll be standing here. I'd love to get you with someone who can help walk you through the gospel and help bring you to a place where you put your faith and trust in Jesus. Maybe you've been visiting here for a while and say, you know what, this is the place I believe God's calling us to connect as a family. You come this morning and we'll put you with someone. Begin that process to talk about what it means to be a member at Red Lane Baptist. Maybe this morning you just need to come in this time of response and just take a knee and just pray. Whatever the Lord's laying upon your heart, you just lay that before the Lord and ask him to speak into your life. Lord Jesus, this morning, we thank you for the great, great testimony, the great example of Nehemiah. Lord, he was a godly man. He loved you. Lord, the reason he loved you and the reason he was a godly man is because you first loved him. You first spoke into his life. You first called him to yourself. And this morning, I thank you that there are many in this room who have embraced that call of God upon their life. Lord, there's also others. God, I pray for those who are lost, those who are dead in their sin and trespasses, as Paul says in Ephesians 1. God, today, would they give their life to Jesus and become a follower of Christ. Lord, I pray for whatever you're putting upon our hearts. God, may we be serious about it. May you teach us and grow us and develop us and strengthen us in our faith. Use this time of response, this invitation time for us, God, to 
respond how, how we should. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for speaking. 